The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 22, or 21, sorry. Revelation chapter 21 And we're going to uh, we're going to begin reading in uh, in verse eighteen. What we have is a description of the New Jerusalem. <clears throat> the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for it of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime... For there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. If you think about uh, the book of Revelation, you could describe it in a couple of different ways. The first, you could say, uh, Revelation is about a tale of two cities, right? Because you have the contrast of Babylon, the harlot, the great city, and then the New Jerusalem. And you end up having those two cities that are uh, contrasted with each other. You could also say that um, Revelation is about about the tale of two women. There is the, the harlot who seduces the earth, and then there is the bride of the Lamb. And she is pure and glorious and radiant. And as you think about the book of Revelation, especially as we come to the end, there is, um, you have to reflect on the fact that to be faithful during this present age is to invite hostility and persecution. The those that are faithful are those that will not compromise with the harlot and will not follow the beast. Those that are faithful are those that are not only those that won't compromise, but those who are faithful even unto death. And it's actually those who are the overcomers. They're the victorious ones. And so as you think about this 
this um, this book, there it's in in a sense there is this this emphasis on a on, on a warfaring life. The saints actually are at war with the devil. This is absolutely clear in Revelation chapter twelve. We need and, and we need to be reminded of that that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This life is is a wilderness wandering life. It is a life in which the devil does everything he can to destroy the people of God. Uh, It is a life in which the world is in complete opposition and total hatred of the people of God. There is an antithesis and by antithesis, I mean that there are, there are polar opposite realities of this, in this life. And one of the things that, that keeps us focused is remembering our future. If, if, if all we do as we live the Christian life is just um, think, uh, I deserve better. I, I, should, I should have a happier life. I should be making more money. I should have a better marriage. I should have a bigger house. I mean, after all, I serve God. I mean, I teach Sunday school. Don't I deserve something better? And so we can start thinking that, that serving God pays off in this life. And the fact is, is that it often doesn't. Young people realize this. Some of God's finest servants are the ones who suffer the most. And so, why do we why do we follow the Lamb? Why are we faithful? Why do we continue to to press on? And the answer is is because. We are, in the words of Bunyan, we're headed to the celestial city. We have a future. So I was reading earlier today, there's a a New Testament scholar named Craig Coaster who wrote a book on Revelation that's actually quite good. And he, he makes this observation, and it's fitting as we come to this section on the New Jerusalem. He says, up to this point, The visions of the cities give readers little reason to celebrate. If readers identify with the holy city, they can expect to be threatened by worldly powers. If they identify with the harlot city, they can anticipate destruction. Neither option is particularly appealing. The vision of the new Jerusalem alters this by showing readers that the holy city of the future extends a hope worth living for. Readers have incentive to identify with the community of faith in the present despite the challenges involved because faith has a future. That last sentence gripped me. Readers have incentive to identify with the community of faith in the present. Remember how we wrapped up last week? Don't give up on the church, right? Yeah, the church has problems, and yeah, there are people in the church that say dumb things and do dumb things, and there are only sinners that are in the church, and the church looks like a mess from this world's perspective, but the fact is, is that this community of faith, I'm not telling you this community of faith, the real community of faith, those that have faith in Jesus throughout the whole world, Yes, there are challenges involved in daily life. There's challenges involved in this this battle that we fight. But it's all worth it. It's all worth it because faith has a future. And so, last week we started with the appearance of the New Jerusalem in 9 through 14 and then looked at the measurements of the new Jerusalem. 
And just a, a, a couple of reminders as we continue on in, um, in exploring the, the New Jerusalem. Remember, there is, um, there is a, a, a fluidity between people and place, all right? The city is a place, but the place is a people, all right? You got that? The, the, the city is a place, but the place is a people, now, by the way, that shouldn't surprise you. I would say that that reality is present in this present age, in a sense, right? So we've, we've, we've rehearsed this a number of times, and this is what Revelation 21 and 22 ultimately end up being about. So you have God dwelling in the t- uh, temple uh, or tabernacle, and then God dwelling in the temple. And so then Jesus comes, and he is the one who tabernacles among us, and he is the temple of God. He's the dwelling place of God. And so Jesus ascends to heaven, sends his spirit, and so is there, is there a, a, a temple in this present world. So when Jesus, in the incarnation, when Jesus was here, where was the temple of God? And some people say, oh, well, it was over in, it was in Jerusalem. And Jesus would say, you're, you're short-sighted. That temple just pointed to something greater, which is me. Okay? I'm the dwelling place of God. So then the question is, so Jesus has now gone to, uh, to heaven, and so is there now a temple on earth? And the answer is yes. Right here at uh, 2230 uh, Hayborn uh, Road in Minden, Nevada, right? This is, this is the temple of God. No, that's the wrong answer. The temple of God exists in this world, but it exists in you. It exists in the church, not the building where the church meets, but in the people. And so temple is sacred space, okay? But sacred space is now people, <laughs> all right? And now what's going to happen is the new Jerusalem is going to be talked about in terms of a garden, a temple, and a city, but that new Jerusalem is not just um, a place, it's a people. How do you know it's a people? Let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem is the bride. The bride is the new Jerusalem. And so John is giving us these, these descriptions. And, and of course, a lot of these descriptions go back. And we, uh, Daniel actually came up and um, reminded me of, um, was it uh, Ezekiel 28, 14, Right? Where, where Eden is actually described as the mountain of God as well, right? And so you have all of this language of, of Eden and, and temple, and all of it converges in the new creation, which of course is the new Jerusalem, which of course is the people of God dwelling in God forever, right? So it's actually pretty exciting stuff when you think about it. So now we get to the building materials, and don't think overly literally here, so the, the material of the wall was jasper, all right? So verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper. So we mentioned last week that ancient cities had walls, and those walls not only defined the, the, the border and who belonged, but the walls actually um, provided security, right? So <clears throat> there was... Um, there, there was no wall around Eden, right? And guess what happened? The serpent got in, okay? The new Jerusalem is going to have this wall of jasper, which symbolizes not that it's under threat, but symbolizes the fact that it is absolutely secure as the dwelling place of God. And in fact, it is, um, it's glorious in the sense that the, the security of the New Jerusalem um, indicates the security that we have in our communion with God forever, okay? which makes it better than Eden. So did Adam and Eve have communion with God in the garden? The answer is yes. 
That communion with God, however, was under threat as soon as the serpent actually came in. Man's supposed to guard the garden, by the way. So Adam, Adam doesn't do all that great of a job. And the serpent comes in and creates havoc and chaos and sin and death enter into the world because Adam falls. And so, uh, in a sense, Adam was on probation. It's a probationary period. Adam has to be tested. Once you and I are eternally dwelling in the new Jerusalem in the presence of God, we will be forever secure with no chance of that communion ever being disrupted or overthrown. So Adam was created, and Adam had the ability um, not to sin, right? He was created with the ability not to sin. In the New Jerusalem, we won't be able to sin. Isn't that great news? Like right now, if you could, if you had a list, like the, like the top ten things you want to change about your life, you know, if 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 I don't wouldn't I don't want to sin anymore, and you had a list of if if that didn't make the top ten, you're not you're not spiritually minded enough, right? Like you give me that list and the stuff that I want to see change in my life, sure. Um, lose weight, sure, have a better back, sure, I, I mean, you know, it could go on and on, right? Uh, sure, draw a deer tag every single year. I mean, I could think of a lot of things that would make me really happy, but you know what would make me happiest is if I just stopped sinning. Okay? Well, guess what? One of these days, I'm going to dwell in the new Jerusalem that is going to be absolutely secure. No enemy can enter and threaten our peace. Okay? And so, be glad the wall's there, right? Build the wall, yay. Then the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, again, so, so the wall, Jasper Wall, better than Eden, now it's, the city's made out of gold. If you go back to 1 Kings 6, guess what Solomon did with the temple? He covered it in gold, right? So was the whole thing gold? No, but it was covered with gold, which was a lot of gold, all right? I mean, let's face it, that would have been pretty magnificent. And so here, now the city is actually, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And so not only is the New Jerusalem better than Eden, the New Jerusalem is better, it is more glorious than Solomon's temple. So you got a wall that's jasper, a city that's made out of gold that is reflective of God's glory and God's holiness, right? And so you know what's funny is we get um, we get all hung up about well, can gold actually be you know become clear? And I mean all of these questions, and it's like okay, well you know what? The minute that you start going down that rabbit hole, you're missing the point of the picture. The point of the picture is that this city is better than Eden, more glorious than Solomon's temple, and it is absolutely filled and reflects the beauty, the holiness, and the glory of God. All right. Now we get to the fun part, and um, I didn't consult with my, with my local geologist about any of this, but the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. So verses 19 and 20. Now, what's going to happen, this is, this is important. So the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned. Now, have we had the word adorned so far in chapter 21? 
Yes. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> and it goes back to 21 and verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, what? Adorned for her husband. And so what we have here is, in a sense, the, um, the, the more explicit description of the adornment of the bride, all right? And so now um, everybody gets excited about all these stones, right? I mean, these are, these are valuable, right? By the way, that is the point of the 12 stones is that they're, they're valuable, right? But do you think that the point is that we should try to discover the meaning behind an emerald versus sardonyx? And the answer is no. You read the New Testament in light of the Old, and is there any place where you have 12 stones? Yes. Where? The breastplate of the high priest. And so you have 12 stones on, by, by the way, uh, a, a number of New Testament scholars point out that eight of the 12 that are mentioned in Revelation 21 match precisely eight of the 12 on the, the priest's breastplate. The other four are very similar. So you could imagine trying to describe rocks in the ancient world. Uh, okay, so, so what you're supposed to think of as you look at these, at these 12 stones, now these are 12 foundation stones. All right? So, so you have to understand, you're getting a little bit of a mixed metaphor, but you hear 12 foundation stones, and so then you think back to the 12 stones that are on the priest's breastplate that's mentioned for us in Exodus 28 and then Exodus 39, and then you realize that the foundation stones themselves are, in fact, we see this from verse 14, the 12 apostles. Hmm. That's interesting, right? So you've got 12 stones connected right to the breastplate of the high priest. And what do those 12 stones represent? The 12 tribes. The 12 foundation stones have the names of the, 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 the apostles of the Lamb on them. And so what's happening is, in a sense, the names of the apostles on the foundation stones are now, in a sense, associated with those 12 stones, that is, the 12 tribes. And what you end up having is a picture of the new Jerusalem that is nothing less than the fulfillment of Israel, so in a sense, how many peoples of God are there? Oh, be careful. How many peoples of God are there? One. Okay. One. The beauty is that that one people of God, the elect from the foundation of the world. By the way, the minute that you that you acknowledge election, you're kind of stuck with ultimately one people of God. You understand that, right? Um, the minute that you acknowledge a covenant of redemption and a covenant of grace, you're really, you're, you're, you're stuck with one people of God. But here's the beauty of it, is that that one people is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? So, uh, yeah, all, all believers from, from, from every era. Now, is there, um, is there, in a sense, a, we'll put it this way, a redemptive historical priority on Israel? And the answer is yes. But that redemptive historical priority, in other words, what's the Old Testament about? Right? Well, the Old Testament's about Abraham and the, and the 12 tribes and then the nation and the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and so forth. And so there's a redemptive historical priority, but in a sense, Israel is never, um, in a sense, a, um, 
Israel never terminates on itself. In other words, Israel is never ultimately the goal of Israel. What is the goal of Israel? To be actually a nation that's made up of many peoples, many nations, many tribes, many tongues. Why do we think that? Well, because that was the promise that God made to Abraham. The minute that we actually get so restrictive in our, in our view of, of the people of God and, and we're only thinking of ethnic Jews or the nation Israel, what we're doing is we're forgetting that going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, the very reason that God chose Abram from Ur of the Chaldees was that through Abram, his seed would bless the nations. This has always been this, in a sense, this um, uh, global, worldwide, um, cosmic uh, people of God that makes it, that's made up from every nation on the face of the earth. And so the fact that you have, in a sense, sort of the melding together of the foundation stones and then the, the, the 12 stones of, of being, in a sense, the apostles and the tribes kind of converging together, it's showing that there is, in a sense, a unity to the people of God. Now, the, um, the 12 stones are listed... And I already read those for you. Um, but th- there is something interesting about, about the, the 12 stones, right? They're beautiful. Uh, one, one commentator says this, and I looked this up just a few minutes before I, I, I came over, and it just struck me as, as this, this, is, this is part of um, the beauty of the 12 stones. Though the precise color of these stones in some cases, are not certain. The general picture described here by John is one of unmistakable beauty, designed to reflect the glory of God in a spectrum of brilliant color. The light of the city within, shining through the various colors in the foundation of the wall, topped by the wall itself, composed of crystal clear jasper, forms a dazzling beauty in keeping with the glory of God and the beauty of his holiness. The city is undoubtedly far more beautiful than, to the eye than anything that man has ever been able to create. Okay? And so the picture is just one of beauty and splendor and, and, and glory. And this is what it is for the bride to be adorned. And so the jewels of the breastplate, are now the foundation stones since the city now is, in a sense, the new Holy of Holies, right? We said that last week. The whole uh, the new Jerusalem is a cube, right? 1,200 stadia by 1,200 stadia, right? It's a cube. And the Holy of Holies was a cube, right? And so now, the, um, as it were, the, the very picture of this beautiful city is that it is now the Holy of Holies. And what's the significance of the Holy of Holies? It's where God dwells. Okay. Now, does that have any relevance, this picture so far, any relevance for the church today? And the answer is yes. Peter gives us a picture of the church in 1 Peter 2.5. We're a priesthood, but we're also a spiritual house made up of, anybody remember? Living stones. Living stones. And so, in a sense, the very picture of God putting this church together is God taking these precious beautiful because they've been redeemed, stones, putting them together into a spiritual house. One of these days, that will be absolutely consummated as the beauty of the bride is finally fulfilled. All right? So, the church, uh, the saints now are are, of course, <clears throat> incorruptibly 
uh, or I should say the saints now are not incorruptibly clothed with glory, but there's coming a day when the saints will be incorruptibly clothed with glory that will be absolutely permanent. And, and as such, we will all be a permanent part of the new Jerusalem. Now we get to the gates and the street. So the 12 gates, verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Now you do understand, with, if, if, if you become a wooden-headed literalist at this point, you're, and you're going to have a gate, to a city with the dimensions that's already been mentioned. These pearls are massive. (laughs) Now, what's the the significance of, of a pearl? By the way, some of you might be interested to know that in Greek, a pearl is a margarites. It's the only Greek word Ariel knows. <laughs> so each one of the gates now is a single pearl. And so remember back in um, Matthew 13. And Jesus says that there was a, a man and went and he founded a treasure that was buried in a field. You remember this? And for joy over the treasure, what does he do? He goes and sells everything he has in order to buy the field, right? And then Jesus actually tells us that the kingdom of God is like a pearl of what? Of great price. And so now the picture, and and so you have to understand, so the picture of the 12 pearls being the 12 gates is, on the one hand, it is is accentuating the beauty of the city, right? There's no no doubt about it. Um, But also it is giving us, in a sense, the unsurpassed value of God's people and the unsurpassed value of what it is to have entrance into the city of God. And so here's this beautiful picture, and then the streets were like pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, you guys know how um, silver was discovered, right, up in Virginia City. So they're, they're lo- actually, they're not looking for silver at all, they're looking for gold. And they're pumping this, this sludge out, and it, and, and, they start paving the streets with it. Okay. If you guys know this story? It's local history. Virginia City is just over there. And they're paving the streets with this sludge that they're bringing out. And some assayer gets the bright idea that he'll assay what's, what this is and come to find out it was silver. They were paving the streets of Virginia City with silver. Now, I don't think it looked like shiny silver, right? Yes, yes, that's what I was thinking. And uh, <laughs> so, so pretty cool, right? You go, oh, well, there was a time where the streets were, were, were lined with silver. Well, this is better, <laughs> This is a lot better. The the picture, of course, what's the significance of saying um, the the street of the city, so the street of the city, was pure gold like transparent glass? Well, again, beauty, again, value, but turn back over to Revelation 11. You got to make these little connections. Revelation 11, verse 
Now, this is the two witnesses. When they'd fin- verse 7, when they'd finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, just, just track with me for a second. It has been a while since we've been in, in uh, Revelation 11, but I, would, I argued that the two witnesses actually represent the church in their testimony, and so then they are killed. Now, pay attention. They, they lay in the street of the great city. So that, that's our connection back to Revelation chapter 21. But what street is this of the great city? Where, where is this street? It's myst- Notice the language. It's mystically, right, spiritually, called Sodom and Egypt. So what's Sodom known for? Just to say debauchery, immorality. Okay? What's Egypt known for? Understand this, that, that places take on characteristics that become types. Okay? This is why Babylon comes about in Revelation 17 and 18, right? Because Babylon, back during what? the uh, captivity came to be characterized by certain things, none of which were good, by the way, right? So, um, so when Peter's signing off in 1 Peter, he says, those from Babylon greet you. And guess he's, where he's writing from? He's probably writing from Rome. Why would he call Rome Babylon? Because Rome's bad, like Babylon was bad, Right? So if you were to say to somebody, let's say you were, um, uh, we had a visitor from, um, a visitor from uh, New Zealand or uh, Australia or some uh, heathen land like that. And, uh, and you, uh, and they were asking, uh, so tell me, what is, um, what is uh, New York City like? What is San Francisco like? And they were familiar with their Bibles. Could you not describe certain modern American cities with biblical cities? Right? So John says the two witnesses are martyred. They lay dead in the street of the great city. If you go through, the great city is, is Jerusalem or Babylon. mystically called Sodom, sexual immorality, and Egypt, worldliness and bondage. Is that not a brief but fair description of what Egypt could possibly characterize? Worldliness but bondage. And then, here's the kicker, where their Lord was crucified. Where was that? It's Jerusalem. So the present Jerusalem is characteristic not of beauty and glory. In fact, by the way, Jerusalem, uh, read, read Isaiah. Pay attention. Every time Isaiah refers to Jerusalem as a whore. Why? Unfaithful bride. Okay. By the way, Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of, of Jesus' day, of Paul's day, and you probably argue the Jerusalem of today, is the faithless bride. Okay. She's more like Sodom. She's more like Egypt. And there lay the bodies of the two witnesses in the street. So the street of the great city in chapter 11 was the place of persecution 
was the place of martyrdom. It was the place of death. It was, in, if, if you want to use Bunyan's terms, um, uh, the, the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, is uh, like Vanity Fair. This is, this is the place of um, not only temptation, but it's also the place of death. Now, all of a sudden, you go from the dead bodies of the two witnesses in the street of the great city called Sodom and Egypt. Now, you go to, a street, to the street of the great city in its pure, translucent gold. What would possibly be the connection? Well, it's not that hard when you think about it. In this present life, do not expect to be treated better than Jesus. In this present life, there will be hostility towards followers of Jesus. And in this present life, even the religious establishment will hate the followers of Jesus. But there's coming a time where the street of that great city, as it were, will be transformed to a glorious street where the saints will tread without fear. It's that way of Zion, right? described for us in Isaiah 35. So now the city is it's full of glory. And so here's the picture. There's a, there's a garden, city, temple that is the new creation. And of course, what is the point? Well, in, in, in one sense, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, actually has now fully succeeded where the first Adam failed, in other words, in other words, the new Jerusalem is what Eden was supposed to be like under the first Adam. First Adam dismally fails. Sin, death, and the curse come in. But now under the last Adam, and, and, and notice this, the last Adam through the church fulfills the mandate to extend the glory of God throughout the whole world. You know that was God's original intent, right? Was to spread his glory throughout all of the earth, right? So man made in, in God's image, what is man? Your, uh, um, man and woman in the image of God are to be like glory reflectors or to image God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, What is that? It's the mandate to fill the earth with glory reflectors. Which is another way of saying, fill the earth with the glory of the image of God. Of course, Adam doesn't do that. Taints the image, corrupts the image, and so forth. And so what does Jesus do? By the way, the Great Commission has a parallel to the original creation mandate. So that, the, the Great Commission, what are you to do? You are to actually go where? All creation. Go where? To all the nations. Doing what? Making disciples, which is doing what? Making redeemed glory reflectors. Is, is, is this making sense? So the Great Commission is actually the last Adam actually being fruitful and multiplying through the church, actually filling the earth with glory reflectors. And one of these days in the, in the New Jerusalem, that glory is going to be absolutely consummated with a church that is without spot and without wrinkle. And so, by the way, you can follow this, this, this storyline in, in a number of ways. So Adam fails. So does God uh, uh, 
trash the program? The answer is no, he doesn't trash the program. He then calls Abraham, and Abraham is going to be what? In a sense, you can think of it this way, Abraham is kind of like a new Adam, and he's going to have these uh, these descendants that are going, uh, miraculous descendants, by the way, who are going to do what? That are going to actually be a blessing to all the families of the earth, right? And so here's this critical point in the plan, we'll just call it Operation Glory, okay? Here's this critical point in the plan where they're about to enter into the promised land, and then God, uh, Moses sends 12 spies, remember this, and the 12 spies go in, two of the spies are faithful, Joshua and Caleb, the other 10 come back, and they're like, wow, it's just like God said. I mean, the grapes are huge, right? They're carrying all the fruit and everything back. And they're just like you said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And all the Israelites are getting so excited. And but, oh my goodness, the sons of Anak are there. The Nephilim are there. They're giants. They make us look like grasshoppers. And so Joshua and Caleb stand up. They try to actually motivate the people. Hey, look, God's given us a promise. They were the early Adoniram Judson that Dr. Beakey was talking about, right? How great is your expectation? As great as the promise of God, right? And so, so the people are like, oh my goodness, yeah, my heart's strangely warned. We should have an invitation right now and I should repent. No, they actually said, we're gonna actually stone you guys and Moses and Aaron, by the way. And so then God turns around and he says, no, you know what, Moses? What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna slice and dice all of them right here, right now, because of their unbelief, leave them in the desert and let them die. And uh, I'll just start over with you. And Moses says, well, you can't do that because then, of course, you know, the report would get back to Egypt and, you know, people would say bad things about about you. And so then God says this in Numbers 14. By the way, he pronounces judgment for the unbelieving generation. Everybody that was 20 years old and up was going to die in the wilderness. Why 20 years old and up? 20 years old is the age of war. Okay? Okay. God says, okay, we're going to I'm going I'm to litter the desert with their dead bodies. But I swear, says the Lord, the earth will be filled with my glory. So guess what Israel does? Israel blows it just like, just like Adam. And then, of course, you get to the book of Habakkuk where there is this glorious messianic promise that just as sure as the waters cover the face of the sea, so the glory of the Lord will cover the face of the earth. And God's purpose is not aborted. It is not thwarted. God actually continues on, and there's coming a day when that new Jerusalem, as a new creation, will actually shine forth the glory of God exactly as God has always intended. And in a sense, Operation Glory will come to pass. Okay, so we got eight minutes uh, for... Um, five verses. So you have the interior features and the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem in 22 to 27. So this is kind of the interesting part when you get here because now John says, I saw no temple in it. So by the way, this is analogous to uh, I didn't see any sea back earlier, all right? I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, here's, here's the thing that you need to remember is um, we, don't, we don't really have um, a religious system like they did back in the ancient world. When you built a temple, that temple was a demonstration of this is this God's territory. All right? Temples were were territory markers for deities, 
They weren't just places of debauched worship. They were that, but they were more than that. They were, in fact, um, territory markers. And so this ends up being significant because John says, I looked around, I didn't see a temple, which would have been strange in the ancient world because everywhere you went, there were temples. But then John explains why he doesn't see a temple, and that's because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And so you, you, you have to appreciate this because Jesus has already alluded to this, right? So um, he's talking to the woman at the well, and uh, you know she brings up the, the, the worship war debate between the Samaritans and the Jews because Jesus asked her, you know, so do you like contemporary or traditional worship? And uh, no, he said, actually, uh, you know, go call your husband. I don't have one. Yeah, it's because you have five and the guy you have now is not your husband. And she says, yeah, about that. You know, you know so Jews think that we should worship in Jerusalem. <laughs> That's what people do, right? <laughs> I mean, this had nothing to do with anything that Jesus, and the, but Jesus then entertains her and he says, he says um, an hour is coming and now is. When the Father will seek worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And you won't worship at Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem because God is spirit. And those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. And so the idea of a temple has never been uh, the end all and be all of the faith of scripture. Even when Solomon builds this magnificent temple, what does he say in 1 Kings chapter 8? He says, I'm not so dumb as to think that you're contained in this temple. This temple is just a picture. Well, now in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. Why? Well, because God himself is the temple. The lamb is the temple. The lamb is the dwelling place of God. And so that replacement of the physical temple begins with Christ in the incarnation. Christ now is the chief cornerstone of the temple, which is the church and and his dwelling place is on earth. But in the end, It's God and the Lamb that are the temple, whereas people are going to dwell forevermore and actually experience the purest communion that that could ever be possibly held between the Creator and His creation. And so there's this beautiful picture. So where, where do worshipers go to worship? Well, they go to the temple. Well, who's the temple? Well, the temple is God and the Lamb. And so now we're in him and he's in us do you not know that you are a temple of the holy spirit who dwells in you and so there's this mutual indwelling and so then no temple because god and the lamb are the temple and then there's a city and then of course there's no need for the sun or the moon in this city Sun and moon, part of the old creation. New creation doesn't need it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it. In other words, God's glory is now the holy sufficient light source for the new Jerusalem. And then, notice this, this is just marvelous. And the lamp is the lamb. It's just beautiful. William Hendrickson says, the lamp is the lamb because he imparts to us the true and saving knowledge of God, abiding spiritual joy, and righteousness of state with a corresponding holiness of condition. Christ, the true light, drives away the darkness of ignorance, misery, guilt, and moral pollution. (laughs) What a future! What a future. You see, if if this life is what really, really satisfies you, you're in trouble. If marriage and kids and work and stuff is what satisfies you, you're in trouble. In the heart of every child of God, 
should be the hunger for more of God. And so to, to, to read this description and to, to see that this, this is the future of God's people because this is God's people in the future. And to be able to look at it and to see the beauty of it, even, even though it's written in, in, in language that is, um, let's just say, what's described for us, even if it was, if it was to the T literal, would be glorious, but what is being described for us is so much more glorious than what's being pictured here. In other words, the reality is greater than the symbol. And the reality is, is designed to make you hunger for God. And to make you actually dissatisfied with this, with this life. Now, I don't mean to be discontent with the life that God gave you. There's a difference between sinful discontentment and holy dissatisfaction. I can be content with the good gifts that God gives in this life and be thankful for them and glorify him through them and yet realize that what I'm tasting through those good gifts is simply a tiny, tiny little taste of something that's much greater to come so that my contentment with God's kindness to me in this life actually... uh, creates, ignites in me a hunger for something more, for something eternal, for something permanent, for something glorious, for something that's without sin. And so you read this and what's supposed to happen is your heart is supposed to be moved with a desire for God and a desire to commune with God and a desire to see and to know him in ways that you've never seen and known him before and to realize that one of these days, what this describes for us will make all of the challenges, all of the trials, all of the disappointments, all the heartaches of this present life will make it all worth it. And so, what condition are your taste buds in? How's your appetite? I don't say this for the sake of my dear friends that live in Michigan, but let's face it, if Michigan winning on New Year's Day was more exciting than the New Jerusalem, then something's terribly wrong. There's nothing in this life that compares to what God has in store for us. And so live for it. Live as if it matters to you. Because in the end, God knows what rules our hearts. That is true of absolutely every single one of us in this room. God knows what rules your heart. And this is designed to ignite your heart with a love for God and a longing for him. Let's pray. Father, we we confess that we love you too little and we long for you too weakly. Father, what what pathetic little creatures we are that are so happy with a mud pie in the slum when glory by the sea is offered to us. Father, help us to be men and women and boys and girls 
whose faith is fixed on the future. And in turn, that gives us boldness and faith in the present. Father, we thank you for this text and we look forward to the day when it will be more than than words on the page of your book. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.